Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Tech, 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 tech talk. Tech, 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 tech talk. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Welcome, students of all things in the future and technological. It's time to put away your VR goggles and settle in for another lesson in what's happening now and what's coming at us, straight at us with warp thrusters blazing. Welcome once again to Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. How are you, Matt? Oh, hold on. Just got to take those VR goggles off. You mean I've got to take them off? I thought that'd be fun to do the whole well, session with VR goggles on. Yeah, no, no, no. They're your real hands in front of you, so you can use those right now. Okay, now, we've got 39 postal workers in the UK, ended up in jail. They've only just had their convictions overturned, but they were put in jail because of a software error. Is that right? It sounds pretty drastic, doesn't it? But you're absolutely spot on. For the last 20 years, if you're a UK post office worker, which I assume you haven't been, but you would have dealt with a piece of software called Horizon. And that's a bit of software that does a whole range of things in the post office. But one of the things that the executives in the UK Postal Service love about it is it catches those dirty postmasters out there that are stealing money <laughs> from the UK Postal <laughs> Service. So They're all evil. They've got the, I'm just picturing the, the, the um, caricatures with their little uh, mask and stuff like that and the stripy shirts and sitting, post, postmasters. Yeah. That's right, <laughs> sitting, sitting behind the counter there taking people's letters. So these people have been caught out, and I say caught out in a very loose sense of the word or term because it turns out that they weren't actually doing the wrong thing. And not only these 39, but other people that were convicted as well, but these people have been declaring their innocence, as everyone else that's in jail mm. has been declaring their innocence for years. For, for what sort of length are we looking at? Is it like a couple of years or what are we talking about? A, a whole range, but but some of these people were in for maybe a year or two, but some there were some significant sums of money we're talking about here, and they were stealing it effectively from the government. So the government went pretty hard on them. Some of them were in jail for 10 years or oh, thereabouts. Wow. So, it's going to make an excellent movie script one day. Yeah. Well, I, I absolutely agree. I think there will be a movie made about it. So effectively, what they found was this Horizon software had a bug, and that little bug caused a little problem that said people were stealing money when really they weren't. So the executives went, we know you've stolen money, Mr. Postmaster. No, I haven't. Yes, you have. And then all the faith was put in yeah, the, the software. software. Well, the software's told us this. Correct. Oh, so wow. you can come up with any any excuse you like, but we're not going to believe you because the software told us. So there's a whole range of employees. Basically, the 39 that have been in jail have, have come out and, and they've got their, their convictions overturned, but there have been 736 employees who have been convicted of something, they may not have gone to jail, over the years from 2000 to 2014. So there's going to be, you can just imagine the lawsuits now, the UK Postal Service will be sued, then suing Horizon, the software. I can see this being a huge problem for the UK, but more to the point, the human element of this, James, how do you get some of your life back when you've been in jail? Or as some people talked about it, they might not have gone to jail, but they lost their job and they couldn't get another job because they were tagged as the thief from the postal service. And I can't imagine going to court and uh, being convicted of anything is, I can't imagine that not taking a tax on you. Absolutely. Particularly if you're a good person who's always done their, you know, done their business lawfully and whatnot. And I'm guessing a lot of postmasters out there are fairly lawful sort of people. And you think it can't happen. You think, oh no, they must have done something wrong. But the investigations into this show that they did nothing wrong. The ah. software showed there was money missing, therefore it must have been them. So, look, I suppose that the real point here, James, is we do put a lot of faith in the systems that we create, but we probably just have to keep in mind that 
maybe they're not always perfect. Maybe there is a possibility that you could have some error in some systems we create and maybe just don't accept the answer of, of yes, whereas in this case the government did and, and it ended up in some dire consequences for people. Yeah, well, I'm sure they'll all be very grateful for their exoneration. All right, moving on now. Bluetooth tracking devices like Tile and, and the new Apple AirTag trackers, they're great to help people find, uh, find their lost keys and whatnot. Uh, but uh, there's some nastiness sort of lurking around the corner here. All these devices come with a degree of caution, right? Yeah, they do. And there's always a bit of nastiness lurking around the corner, unfortunately. I mean, the tile has been great. I've, I've got tiles. I've been using them for years. And the thing is, if, if I lose my keys, for example, with a tile attached somewhere else and it's out of Bluetooth range of my phone, I'm relying on the tile community. So if someone else has got the tile app on their phone and they're nearby, then great, it might alert me to where that tile is. But there's only about 10 million tile users across the world. Apple have now got their AirTags and suddenly you've got this whole billion plus iPhones, 1.65 billion iPads and iPhones around the world. So as long as that AirTag is somewhere near one of those iPhones, it can track where it is. So if I want to stalk you, James, just while I'm chatting to you one day, I just you know drop into your briefcase an AirTag. Or maybe in your car, I just drop an AirTag. And I'm going to rely, even if you don't have an iPhone, I'm going to rely on the fact that someone near you, somewhere when you go about your daily travels, is going to have an iPhone. I'm going to be able to have a look exactly where you are. So wow. that sounds pretty scary. Yeah, it does, absolutely. So just Apple's, right? Um, what about Android? So Android haven't got... Uh, the well, Samsung do have a, a Bluetooth tracker, a similar Bluetooth tracker. Right. But in in this scenario, I suppose the thing that's really scary here is just how many iPhones there are, how many iPhones are out there with the Find My activation already on, yeah, already right. ready to go, because people use that all the time. Yeah. So it's interesting. Now, Apple have actually thought about this. It's a bit scary that Apple have thought about how stalkers are going to use one of their products. They've thought about this, and there's two scenarios. One scenario is if you do have an iPhone, and it finds an AirTag that's been near you for a couple of days and it hasn't been yours or hasn't, you know, not, not a part of your Find my, my ecosystem, it will say, hey, James, you seem to have an AirTag near you and it's not yours. And it's time to get paranoid. It's time to get paranoid. <laughs> have a look through your briefcase. Look under oh, your car. So at me. least you'll know there's an AirTag that's yeah. been following you around for a couple of days. The other thing is that if an AirTag is away from its owner, away from its owner's phone, out of Bluetooth range for a couple of days, it will also start making a noise. That's great. If I drop my keys down when I'm going out for a run one morning and someone's on the path and they hear this thing beeping away in the grass, pick it up, oh, look at that. I wonder whose AirTag this is. So that's the idea of it. But also, if you get in your car and you hear this beeping going on, you're going, what's that? And you look around and find an air tag there that's not yours again, you know that someone's probably trying to stalk you. Sorry, James. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, it's nice to have the heads up at least, yeah? Yeah, yeah, it is. So, look, I don't think it makes it a foolproof system, but everything that we have out there, I suppose, it's invented for good, can be used for evil in some way, shape yeah. or form. But air tags, they will be popular. They've only just gone on sale now. They will be popular. There's no doubt about it. Just having those sort of devices to find things, great. Just be conscious, I suppose, of how they could be used. Yeah, but I think that little um, warning for you will be a nice little handy one, yeah. Wikipedia. It's got the teaching fraternity divided, yeah, because of the very nature of it. Yeah, we know that it's got up-to-date uh, information and that information comes from all around, so everyone can contribute to that encyclopedia. But a lot of teachers say, oh, well, you can't rely on it. 
Tell us more about this. Um, Wikipedia's greatest advantage is possibly its greatest flaw, the, the, the fact that anyone can edit the encyclopedia entries. For example, you know, I understand the Iron Maiden um, being a rock band or Torture Device can be edited, it was been edited, what, 10,000 times? You've got some other examples there too, Matt? Yeah, that's, it's one of my favourites, actually, Iron Maiden, because I hear Iron Maiden, I think of the rock band. But yeah. for some people out there, it was a, a medieval torture device. And so that page, the edit wars in that page have been raging for years. Yeah, right. So you'll look at Iron Maiden one day, it'll be talking about a rock band. You go back a week later, it might be talking about a, a torture device. You know what I'm going to do straight after this show right now? <laughs> I hope yeah. so. <laughs> so another couple to look at, aluminium versus aluminium. And that's another one I want to talk about later too, another time. But yeah, yeah, that's, that's right. a really interesting And it debate. always annoys me that Americans call it aluminium because the scientific name is aluminium. Well, you know they had naming rights, though. They were the first to find it. Uh, Americans. The Americans. Yeah, right. But I thought the scientific community actually had the EM at the end. So it was that's why I want to talk about it later. It frustrates the hell out of me, but they're right. Oh, are they? Oh, oh no. no. Oh, it's always the other way around. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that page has been edited 6,000 times. Looks like we're going to have to go and get that one edited again. And even the Andre the Giant, his height, has been edited 4,000 times. But the oh, latest, my goodness. <laughs> the latest. If the there's latest. something to debate about, right, <laughs> Okay. Is chicken parmigiana, is it an Australian invention, an Italian invention, or an American invention? Oh. That is a current latest Wikipedia war. And people are editing. If you go and look down the very bottom of the Wikipedia entry about chicken parmigiana, you'll see the latest date that it was actually edited. And I, I looked at it when I was doing the research for this show, and it would have been edited about three days ago. So if you go and look at it again, I, I think that editing will continue on. The argument so, though, Hang on, sorry. So... Each time you check it, the the origin of chicken parmigiana might have changed. It might have changed. Exactly the same as Iron Maiden might <laughs> change. Where chicken parmigiana started might have changed because someone else has gotten on there and said, no, that's wrong. I'll fix it. I'm a Wikipedia editor. I can do that. So the argument is really about what is chicken parmigiana, I suppose. And so I would suggest that the, the old classic, what I would think is chicken parmigiana, you know, crumb, chicken breast, topped with a bit of melted cheese, tomato sauce. Stop it. Bit of ham. Mouth I know I'm getting hungry. <laughs> um, that there is actually, as far as I can work out, looking at food historians' information. I didn't know such a title existed, but there are food historians. That's existed in Australia as an invention of us for about the last 40 years. Absolutely. The chicken parmigiana Italian style has, wait for it, eggplant in it. That, to me, is enough to, to wipe it off the list. <laughs> <laughs> not a fan of the aubergine. No, not at all. Right. And the American version has pasta or sometimes bread in it. So there are three yeah, different look, versions. Yeah, look, stop right there. Can, can you even take that seriously? <laughs> no, you can't. You can't. No. But this is the sort of thing, again, as I said, or as you said, the greatest strength of Wikipedia is that editing, but also it's a weakness. Back in the old days, people had university degrees, maybe multiple university degrees, and they were esteemed editors of a group of encyclopedias. Now, any Joe Blow can get registered as a Wikipedia editor and go for it. I mean, there are rules around it. You can't go and do crazy things, but this is the sort of thing we get. And then that debate that's happening in pubs happens on Wikipedia. It's quite clearly an Australian dish. Um, <laughs> you know, I once had an argument with an American about spaghetti marinara um, and whether or not uh, seafood belonged in it. And the American said, um, no, just tomato sauce and that's all. Yeah, your right. spaghetti marinara because they invented it. <laughs> and I had to just pull out of the conversation at that stage. <laughs> Did you check Wikipedia though? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's my job after this. That's right. you got some jobs after yeah, this. Yeah, i got some you? jobs after this. Right, yeah. Many car manufacturers have announced their exit date for petrol and diesel-powered cars. This is, again, we're coming back to the EV cars, right? Yeah. Uh, which is the latest well-known manufacturer to announce their end date? 
Well, they've actually got a few end dates they've announced, and it's not one that we necessarily have seen leading the EV charge, but it just gives you an idea where it's headed at the moment. Honda's the latest one to come out, and I think most car manufacturers now feel like they've got to come out and make some announcements because it seems to be the flavour of the month for... Too much pressure, yeah. Yeah, I think so. so not in Australia, though. Well, not in Australia, no, that's oh, don't get me started, James. So, <laughs> but they've said by the end of 2022, they will not sell any gas or petrol, diesel, any fossil fuel power car in Europe. So that's Get next year. Here. Yep. So they're gone out of Europe. By 2030, they said 40% of global sales will be battery or hydrogen electric. Um, but by 2040, they have said they will not produce a single fossil fuel power vehicle. Now, it's really interesting because some manufacturers have come out and said, we're not going to produce new models but we'll keep making some of the old models because the sales will be there. It's pretty rare at the moment for a car manufacturer to come out and say, we won't even be producing that old favourite, that classic that we sell truckloads of. We're not even going to produce that anymore by a certain date. Some manufacturers haven't been game enough to go that far, but Honda have said that's it basically by 2040, which I know is 19 years away, but it'll go pretty quickly. Well, yeah, we've talked about this before. The writing's not only on the wall. There's many people scratching on that wall, and um, and it's got times and times coming after it. I mean, there's other ones as well. Uh, Mini, they've said no more fossil fuel power cars after 2030, so they've basically said they're gone. But the Mini is a fairly small model range, obviously, not like Honda that's got a huge number of models. But even Kia and Hyundai, um, they're spending $30 billion on electrification by the year 2025, and they say they'll have half a million annual sales by the year 2025. So, look, it's happening for a whole range of manufacturers. Everyone's getting out of the fossil fuels. Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess it's, um, well, it's it's, it's 150-year-old technology. Um, It's time to move on. Google's in more strife in Argentina. (laughs) This time, well, Argentina this time, I've got to say. Fancy a new domain for your business? What about using the Google domain name? Tell us more about this, Matt. It wouldn't be bad, would it? I, I did a few calculations and just made some estimations there based on world population. Argentina's got about 0.58% of the world population. Google has 3.5 billion visits to their websites each day. Break it down roughly, it means that in Argentina, the website would be getting about 235 visits per second. Now, (laughs) you say to anyone, you wouldn't mind 235 visits to your website? Sure, that sounds pretty good. Well, one particular web designer in Argentina went to go to Google for search or something, as you do, and it came up with no domain found. Well, that's a bit strange. It, a few well, other things. As you probably would. Yeah. And then he went, I just wonder, I'm just going to go to a domain authority and try and register google.com.ar and see what happens. And it registered. He paid his 270 pesos. 270 pesos. <laughs> and that's it. He now owns the Google domain, pointed at his website. Over a two-hour period, he got about 1.7 million visits to his website. Holy smokes. <laughs> before right. finally someone at Google went, Oh, we haven't paid our domain name yet, or whatever. We don't know why. And at this someone stage. lost their job. <laughs> right. yeah. So they took it back off him after a couple of hours. He still hasn't got. Oh, so they could just wrestle it straight back off him. Well, they shouldn't have been able to because the, the registration. He paid his two hundred and seventy pesos. That's right. So he shouldn't have been able to. But I, I don't know whether it was a mistake by Google, but someone at the domain registry authority probably went. You know what? Maybe we should have just held on to that in quarantine for a little bit of time. Maybe not giving it to someone else was a smarter <laughs> thing. So we don't know where it happened, but somewhere it could have been as simple as Google not paying their domain name. But I don't think it's that simple. I think it's something else has happened. But what about seizing an opportunity? I thought that was yeah, great. Wow, so, that's fantastic. But I'm just uh, just imagining this. It takes a, a pretty bold sort of person to grab a name like that and want to hold on to it as that's well. Right. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's 
this is involved, but even, even just grabbing it and saying, I'm going to point that to my side and happy days, yeah. here we go. <laughs> he actually did put something up on social media because he was getting a, a bit of hate mail as well because oh, people really? were going, oh no, I went to so, go to Google and I just got your page, what's going on? He actually put up something, I didn't steal it, I didn't do anything illegal, I just went and registered a domain name, the same as anyone could do, and paid my money. So he almost had to defend himself against accusations of illegal activity. Yeah, but you know how wound up people get these days about yep. these sorts of things? I wonder yep. how forgiving they were of him for just <laughs> just seeing if he could, and he did. All and I can say is now that you know, just about everyone in Argentina has heard of Nicholas Corona. Right. Yeah. And he's, he's got his own evil villain costume that he wears, like uh, in the old Batman show, uh, like he's the Riddler or the Joker or something. If he didn't, I hope he does now, <laughs> surely. <laughs> We still seem to be uh, manufacturing plastics and turning them into landfill. Uh, any scientists any closer to getting a truly biodegradable plastic? Now, we know that you know the, some biodegradable plastics, they break down into tiny microplastics, yeah. but are we able to get them into those simple substances that can be part of the ecosystem again? Yeah, look, I think we are. And, and the, I suppose the sad part is that some of the recycling we can do, and there are some problems with biodegradable, as you said, sometimes what you end up with is just smaller things that are the same problem anyway, mm. so it doesn't really solve the problem. But the big issue is some of those recyclable plastics are not put into recycling. In fact, a study a few years ago showed that of all the plastics that could be recycled, only 9% are. So obviously yeah. 91% are still ending up in landfill, which obviously doesn't really solve the problem. It's a worry. But some scientists at the University of California have actually come up with some enzymes that they can build into the plastic that sit there idle, and then when heat and water is applied, they go to town and turn them into things that basically can just go back into our soil. So where they're really designed to be used is in a compost system, for example. You have your plastics, you put it in the compost, it gets some heat as it generates some heat within the compost, sits out in the sun, bit of water on it. You get there a few days later, those plastics don't exist anymore. Yeah, yeah, wow. Yeah. So, yeah, let's just get this into perspective. So, Because an enzyme isn't an organism itself. No. An enzyme's just a molecule there. And, and so it, it, it fires up once you give it that enough heat um, and and that triggers it off to start chewing up that plastic. Yeah, and you're right. Enzymes are just a catalyst. So they basically start the reaction. And what they've got is they've got them contained within the plastic. So it can still be a liquid, a milk, for example, in there. You put it in your fridge, that's great. It's not hot, it's got liquid in there, but you need that combination of heat and liquid to actually trigger the enzyme, to, to actually, the, the catalyst, if you like, to start that reaction. Yeah, right. So they've only got it in the laboratory at this stage. They've done the testing in the laboratory. The next stage will be testing it in some real-world applications, making some fizzy drinks, making some milk containers, whatever it might be that you would normally use plastic in, see how that behaves, and then go to the next stage. I mean, there, there might be some problems. For example, you might have uh, some drinks, some bottles of water in a truck somewhere and they're not refrigerated and the, the guy gets the other end and opens the back of the truck and out comes all the water that's just been sitting there with all the plastic having broken down if the, if the yeah, truck wow. overheated. So you've got some problems to work through, but yeah. at least it's getting to that point where we can see that plastic broken down. Well, I think King Neptune is getting excited. Maybe the oceans will get cleaned up after all. <laughs> that's and right, yeah. Landlines. It's like almost an ancient technology now, um, but having a landline phone installed was once an exciting development. Have we reached the end of the line now for the landline phone? Is oh, it? You're going with those puns still, aren't you? Yeah, I love it. <laughs> Look, we're getting close. We're getting very close. And I'm probably talking here more about landlines in a home. In a business, people still have landlines. There's a whole range of reasons they want to be able to advertise that one number. But in landlines, the stats are showing that they are going down quite dramatically. So, for example, about 40% of us have now stopped using a landline altogether completely. Mm. It does change a little bit 
different age brackets, so over 65-year-olds, still 95% of those are using landlines, whereas you go down to under 25s, over half don't have a landline at all at their house. The other thing's interesting, with broadband connections, often you'll have a landline as part of it. So people often have a phone number. They don't even know they've got a phone number. It just comes with their broadband connection. You you, you pay more to have it without it, so I guess I'll get it. So about 40% of people that have got an MBN or some type of broadband connection that's got a landline don't have a handset attached. And we see that if you say to someone, you've got a landline, what's your phone number? Oh, I don't know. I've never looked at it. <laughs> if they look on their bill, they'll probably see the number, see but there. they don't know it. And part of the reason they want to disconnect them and not even worry about a handset is the last time it rang from someone was probably a scam caller. So well, I tell you, we've got a landline at our place, yeah. and we only, we, well, whenever we've got um, a, an application or something and we don't want to get a phone call from those people, yep. we give them the landline number. <laughs> so when that landline rings, you know, it's all right, kids. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's still a place for them, I suppose, in places out of mobile phone reception or in rural areas, really far-flung regional areas that don't have some type of mobile phone or some type of broadband connection. But really for people in towns, in cities, a landline in their home, how long will it be? I mean, Mm -hmm. it's only a couple of generations ago. My wife tells the funny story that in her hometown that she grew up in, a population of about 1,000 people, her phone number, when she went to boarding school, her phone number she used to give her friends was the number one. Her home phone number was one. Was number one. So you'd ring the town exchange and then say, put me through to one, please. Okay, sure thing. I'll put you through to to that one. Or the exchange operator would say, oh, no, they're not there tonight. They're at a party over at the the Jones's place. I'll put you through to number seven instead. Yeah, have a chat with the operator. She knew So that's only, you know, we're talking about two generations. It's gone from that to now we don't really want our landline because how inconvenient not being able to walk out the door with it and take Mm. it down the town. Yeah. Incredible. Amazing. Flying already feels relatively safe, but is Airbus about to take a giant leap forward in flying safely? Uh, yeah. Well, we do see flying. I mean, I, I'm, I love flying and I, I, I do prescribe to the theory that it is much safer. The, the stats show that, that it is safer flying than it is getting in your car and driving downtown. So there's a lot of systems in place, but one thing that the airlines haven't really used a lot is LIDAR. So that's laser imaging detection and ranging. Some people call it light uh, rather than laser imaging. So this goes beyond the normal autopilot. Yeah, this is using the autopilot, but this is doing things where you're actually sending out laser signals to then detect what's around you and then range how far away they are in a whole range of different directions. And be able to respond to those, yeah. That's right. Now, we have AR and things like our iPads, our phones have got LiDAR now in them so that we can do really important things like play augmented reality games. So that's fantastic. (laughs) But we haven't actually used them in airlines yet. And the idea here would be you've got a fixed-wing aircraft. It's using LiDAR in a whole range of different directions to make it safer because it can see effectively what's around it, what's below it. And the real area they think they can make a huge difference here is with helicopters. Over the last 10 or 20 years, Fixed-wing flights or or safety fixed-wing flights has gone up. They've been safer. But helicopters, actually, interestingly enough, the safety's been dropping. So the the accident stats have been going up for helicopters. Yeah, because I understand piling in a helicopter requires a whole lot of sort of sixth sense feel about it. You're you're, you're reading tiny little um, drops in pressure and whatnot. But with LiDAR, you can actually detect those small uh, drops in pressure in advance, right? Well, I'm not sure about the pressure one. You might have me on that one. But I think it's more about what's below you in a helicopter. And so, for example, sometimes people do something as innocent as they're coming down to land, experienced pilot, they've checked all around them. But Directly below them, there might be a power line, for example, that they oh, don't right necessarily then. see. And that's where something like LIDAR, looking in all directions, but in particular down when you're coming down to land a helicopter, can actually help you see what's around you without 
you seeing what's around you as such. So that's one thing where they they are looking at trying to improve that safety. So Airbus has gone into a partnership with a company called Luminar. Now Luminar is well known for some of the car clients they've got. They've got clients like Volvo, Audi, Toyota, even Daimler's trucking division uses Luminar. But this is their first foray into aircraft and Airbus also, their first foray into using something like LiDAR. So again, flying is pretty safe as it is at the moment, Mm. but LiDAR hopefully will make it even safer and and Luminar hopes that as well. Yeah, right. Well, um, I was talking about the the detecting pressure. I know that um, weather forecasting satellites are using um, LiDAR now to sense tiny, tiny, tiny um, molecules of water in the atmosphere and uh, affecting pressure and whatnot. So, yeah, Yeah. I wonder where just, just what the... Well, what the horizon has got for, yeah, for well, using LiDAR that, with uh, helicopter flights. That, that may be part of the, the overall solution as well. I, I think initially it will be about objects, but exactly as you say, trying to look around that air pressure and pick differences in air pressure there would be an important mm. thing as well. Now, autonomous vehicles, uh, they come with a special level of trust, I've got to say, but they're starting to become a bigger presence uh, overseas. Am I right? You're right, James. Robot cars, which people affectionately call them, are back in the spotlight again on Capitol Hill after some previous efforts failed to pass comprehensive legislation which would allow more autonomous vehicles on the road. They're giving some exemptions for autonomous vehicle manufacturers to manufacture more cars. At the moment, they've been 2,500 cars have been allowed to manufacture, but it's going to the point where they'll be able to manufacture 15,000 cars per manufacturer. So this is pretty important in terms of getting all the way down the path of autonomous driving. So there's a coalition, of course there is, there's always a group of, of, of some you know, group of some interest there, called the Self-Driving Coalition for Safer Streets. And they include companies like Uber and Lyft and even some car companies like Volvo and Ford. So they're pretty happy about this process. It hasn't become law in the US yet, but they're pretty happy about going down this path because they obviously want to the point where they can have more cars manufactured, more cars means more testing. They'll be able to get to the point where you and I will be able to go and buy an autonomous vehicle because it's been going through all these various testing stages. Yeah, well, look, it's, it's a special interest for me. I have an autistic son who I don't see ever getting his driver's licence. So I th- I look forward to Australia picking up um, autonomous vehicles, but I yeah. um, hope it happens before he's 90 years old. <laughs> well, look, I, I think it will, James. I think it will. The, the interesting part here is that, so this is the Congress, US Congress, trying to get these rules to go through or, or law changes to go through. Some parts of Congress are arguing strongly in this way. Whether they get it through or not, I'm not sure. I hope they do. But meanwhile, there was a, a Tesla Model S crash recently and a couple of senators have said, we want a full investigation into that. Was someone driving or was that autonomous driving? So they're kind of arguing. They want mm. some some further discussions or some investigations on that side, again, being against autonomous driving while some other parts of the Congress are in favour of it. So democracy will win the day, but we will get there eventually. Yeah, well, uh, I'm looking forward to the day. Uh, Maybe not with the current government, but let's just uh, wait and see what happens there. Mm. All right, Matthew Dickerson, thank you very much for another week of enlightening tech talk. Um, I've been your host, James Eddy. We look forward to you tuning in again next week. We gave them no homework this week, James. We had the homework from last week for going out and talking to their phone, but we didn't have any homework this week. Well, uh, we'll wait for the phone lines to uh, for the ring-in for that. That's and right. um, well, Maybe Wikipedia. We'll maybe checking Wikipedia's yeah, homework. Okay. Go and have a look at those edits. Okay, let's do that then. Right, yeah. All right, thanks again, Matt. Thanks, James. All the best.